Those of you who've seen the film, maybe even read the book from years ago, uh, may remember that he is something of a, of a dim-witted, though good-hearted individual who over the course of some significant events in United States 20th century has this unintended but significant effect on several events as they, as they play out. And, and one of the most memorable scenes of the film is when Forrest gets word that his mother is dying and he rushes to her aid. And, and I'm going to just read you a few quotes, a few lines uh, from that scene, actually, with, with Tom Hanks and Sally Field. Forrest Gump says, Why are you dying, Mama? Mrs. Gump says, It's my time. It's just my time. Oh, now, don't you be afraid, sweetheart. Death is just a part of life. It's something we're all destined to do. I didn't know it, but I was destined to be your mama. I did the best I could. You did good, Mama. Well, I happen to believe you make your own destiny. You have to do the best with what God gave you. What's my destiny, Mama? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates, Forrest. You never know what you're going to get. Mama always had a way of explaining things so I could understand them. Well, again, some memorable scenes, some great lines, begs a question. Why are we here? You know, that's the question that Forrest is being prompted to consider, and he's throwing back at his mom, and his mom throws back at him. Why are we here? And I say that this morning. I'm, I think that question is being prompted by our text here this morning, not just us as individuals in that, um, uh, in that, in that profound personal sense, but why as a church, Christ's church, this particular local body, uh, as part of a larger presbytery, part of a larger denomination, or you could say just this church is among other churches in this community. Why are we here? Why are we here? Uh, those of you who've been a part of this little mini-series over the last several weeks know that we've been in the book of Acts, and we've been in the book of Acts looking and, and wrestling with some of the questions and some of the insight that we get from the, God's Word regarding matters of race and racial injustice and how to think and process with these, these things. And a few weeks ago, we considered this, what God is doing, what God is doing. And then after that, we looked at something else similarly to, to that, but, but still a little different, and that is the change that God is bringing. So what God is doing and the change that God is bringing, and now here this week, we're going to look at a third thing, and that is the church God is making the church that God is making. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. Now, this is actually the immediate sequel of what we were looking at just two weeks ago, okay? And two weeks ago, it was the uh, account in Acts 10 and then the first half of Acts 11 of, of Peter and Cornelius, this Roman centurion who comes to faith it's a profound moment in the history of the church, and now we move on to something that if, if you could almost say that that was setting the tone for something even bigger, this account of the formation, the beginnings of the church at Antioch. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to, through 26, hear now God's Word. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, 
men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Let's pray together for just a moment. Lord, thank you for this historical account, this record of what was happening there in that city, of what you were doing, of the wonderful, wondrous, astonishing things that you were doing, the changes that you were bringing, very personal changes to to individuals and at the same time showing the whole world then and now what your greater intentions are for your church. Oh, we ask that you would help us capture Well, capture our imaginations, capture our hearts, capture our longings, our desires, our our convictions, our commitments by these things. I pray in your name. Amen. So in the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, this vision that the Lord gives to the Apostle John, among many, many other things, of course, one of the things that we see here is a vision of God's church. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read this to you. It's just two verses in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. It's an astonishing picture. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Well... It's, again, a beautiful, wondrous, amazing image of what's coming. And for the Christian, of course, it's hard to argue with that, right? Because mm, there it is right there in the text. I mean, this this is Jesus speaking. It's right there in the Bible. So however hard it may be to envision, for the Christian, you can't argue and fight against it because there it is. At the same time, it's hard to envision as we look around us in the world in which we live. You know, so you can't argue with it as far as this future horizon because it's Jesus saying it's in the Word, but as we just look at our contemporary culture, think back through history, think of our, just our experience and what we know, it's hard to envision. And so what oftentimes happens is because it's so hard for so many of us to envision, we just resign ourselves then to thinking, well, that whole business of Revelation 7... That's just for the future. 
we're just going to have to, you know, endure what we have to endure till then. Little wonder, then, that the church is so divided racially, culturally, ethnically, because we've just resigned ourselves to thinking that that has nothing, the future has nothing to do with our present. But think with me here. Is it not possible, is it not possible that we should be shaped now by what we will be then? Is it not possible that the Lord's intentions for us indeed are that we should be shaped now by what we will be then? I mean, after all, what we will be then, that horizon that the Lord Himself is, is giving to John and there and giving to us, that horizon is, is, a, is a reflection of the Lord's purposes and plans for His people. It's something He wants, right? If that's something He's going to bring to pass, the only reason He's going to do that is because it's what He wants. His purposes, His plans, they're in driven by what pleases, what He Himself longs for and wants for us as His people. He has in mind for us to be a, a multicultural community a technicolor assembly, that's, what's, that's what awaits us. As you look out over that future horizon, well, here's what's amazing. It's not just what we see as we look to that future horizon. As we turn around and look at our past, Acts 11, we see the same thing. We see the very same thing that he has in mind. A, a, what one author I was reading here recently described as a doxological diversity. It's not just a future thing. It's, not just a, it, it's, it's a past thing. And folks, here we are in the middle. We're looking that way. We're looking that way. And you, know, you kind of get a sense of what Jesus has in mind for his people. It's, 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 it's inescapable. It's absolutely inescapable. The Lord has made clear His plans for His people. He's made abundantly clear His plans for His people. And we should be longing and laboring for that. We should be longing and laboring for that. And whatever that would mean. Whatever that would mean. Now you ask, well, how do you, how do you see that in the text? Well, you see it here in Acts 11 in, in at least three ways. And if you printed out the outline, you can see it right there. First, in the initiative that's taken there at Antioch. You see it there. And the second thing is you see in the assessment of these events that take place there at Antioch. And then the third thing, you see it in the identity of those disciples there in Antioch. So those three things, the initiative, the assessment, and the identity, all three like a trio of voices crying out, singing this beautiful song, saying, this is the Lord's plan. This is the Lord's purpose for us. Oh, would we long and labor for that? Well, let's look at these, these three things in turn. First, this, this initiative that we read of there in Antioch, and that's there in verses 19 through 21. 
This is, as I was saying earlier, this is the, the origin, this is the beginning, the birth of this church. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Now, by the way, that's referring back, and if you go back and read the book of, in, in Acts, and you read in chapter 7, in the early part of chapter 8, that's what that's talking about. So now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But, and this is a profound shift here of the flow of events, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed to turn to the Lord. This is something just absolutely unprecedented up to this point. A, a clear movement was taking place. At the very least, geographically, you'd have to say a clear movement is taking place. As the gospel is moving from Jerusalem up several hundred miles up north to Antioch. Now, Antioch, let's, let's talk about that, what, what the city was like for just, just a minute. This is the third, at the time, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. This was the capital of the Syrian province, home to some uh, half million people, lived here. This is not some podunk little backwater community. This is a major urban center the city of Antioch in what is now today southern Turkey. And there in this city, you had such things as a palace and a hippodrome and an aqueduct and temples and baths and theaters and this beautiful, astonishing, colonnaded, marble-paved road. I think it was going north-south there in the city. Antioch was home. It played host to Olympic-style games in the first century. This is a big deal. The gospel moving from south down in Jerusalem, up north, several hundred miles up into Antioch. This is a big deal. A geographic movement is taking place, but it's even bigger deal is the cultural movement that's taking place. Because, and, it's, and, and Luke is drawing our attention to this in the way he writes that. It's these Jewish Christians rubbing shoulders and testifying to Jesus to these Greek-speaking Gentiles, the Hellenists, that's who they are. Greek-speaking Gentiles, these Jewish Christians are speaking to. Folks, we've got to understand that in that context, and there's hundreds of years of context behind this, this is massive. The sea change of momentum is huge at this point. Or if I can mix the metaphors, walls. Such walls are coming down here. It's absolutely astonishing what is taking place. This clear movement of the gospel having great effect, great effect not just upon the church, but upon the community in which this church sat. You see, the expansion of the church, Luke says this twice, actually, of so many people coming to believe as, as uh, these, these non-believing folks from the outside of the church come to hear the gospel, believe it, embrace it, and join this movement. Expansion of the church. And how was this happening? Well, I mean, unless you, were left, you, unless you think we're left to guess, Luke tells us that it was the hand of the Lord was with them, 
there in verse 21. What an astonishing expression, right? What an astonishing image. The hand of the Lord was with them, referring to the presence of Jesus with them, His power at work through them, and that can only be because of His pleasure with what is happening amidst them. The hand of the Lord was with these people. That's the only explanation as to how it is these things are happening. So, the initiative of what's transpiring there, this new thing that's transpiring there in the city of Antioch, points us towards this expansive and inclusive plan and purpose for the Lord for His people. There's something compelling, something compelling that those on the outside of the church were seeing and was drawing them into into the church. You know, it's been a long time since Mr. Rogers was popular, but he is popular yet again. You know, there's been several documentaries that have been made of Fred Rogers, and there was a major feature film, speaking of Tom Hanks earlier, um, major feature film starring Tom Hanks, uh, I think it was sometime last year, if I remember right. And, uh, you know, it's a clear consensus on Fred Rogers and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And what was so compelling about this show for so many years, and now it seems like, again, as people are so fascinated with him all, all over again, it was not the brilliant puppeteering. It was not the fan-dancy sets. It was certainly not any CGI special effects. It was just that Fred Rogers made goodness attractive. There was a winsomeness to the man. There was something compelling about his life and the way he engaged, even with the, 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 the youngest and the, the least of these, if you will. Well, it's something of that, something, being, something compelling was what's going on there in the city of Antioch. People being drawn to something they had never seen before. As these people our tasting of what it means to be forgiven of our sin, what it means to be freed from the power of our sin, what it means to live a transformed life, what it means to taste something of a joy unknown ever and unseen ever before. As, as those people were experiencing something of, of the living presence of Jesus in their life and testifying to that and this unity enhanced and enriched by diversity that the world had never seen, it was compelling and the world was drawn to it and it was nothing less than the Lord's doing, nothing less. And he's, again, showing us here his plan for his people. And this has got to be something that we would be longing and laboring for. That's the first point, the initiative that you see in Antioch. Leads you to the second thing, the assessment of these events transpiring. What's, what's happening here? Let me unpack that if I can. Uh, let's pick up where we left off in verse 22 and now reading on into verse 24. Uh, what, what happens as a result of these things? Will you pick up the report of this? everything we just read, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad 
And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. You see this momentum just building, building, building. So the church in Jerusalem gets wind of this and realizes they need to check this out. What's going on? So they realize they need to send someone to check it out, an emissary a representative. And so Barnabas is the man that is chosen. Well, who is this guy? Who is this guy, and, and what do we, we know of him? He go, he, this is not the first time Barnabas shows up in the book of Acts. He, he's been mentioned several other times already. Uh, his, his nickname was the son of encouragement, and, and indeed, that's exactly what he was. He, he's a living embodiment of encouragement. You may remember that at, at the time when Saul was converted, the man who becomes the apostle Paul, but when Saul was converted, he, he comes to the church there in Jerusalem. It's Barnabas who receives him and embraces him and brings them into the people's, the people's midst. Uh, he took him under his wing. And, then, and now we see here... Uh, in this text, how is the man described? Well, first of all, he's the one of all the people that could have been chosen, right? They're in the Jerusalem church to go on the, assign this task. He is. He is. And then we read of the, these character descriptions there in verse 24. He is a, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith. Well, that's that's quite something to be described in that way in the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Spirit-inspired Word to be, to, to be described in such ways. So why is that significant, though? Why is it significant, though, uh, that, that we have this description? Why would you have this kind of reminder, the character description of Barnabas? Well, it's simply this. You, I know, no doubt many of us have heard this expression, the need to consider the source, Right? The need to consider the source. So when you're, when you're hearing some sort of critique, especially if you're on the receiving end, but also when you're on the receiving end of commendation or compliments, right, it's always worth considering the source, weighing carefully who it is that's offering these words of critique or commendation, right? So you know something as to whether or not there's any credibility to what's being said. Well, you see, what Luke is showing us here is that when it comes to Barnabas and whatever assessment he's making of what's going on here in the church of Antioch, this man is highly accredited. And we have to listen. We have to pay heed to what he sees and says of, the, of what's going on there. It's absolutely vital that we would do that. So how, then how does he respond? With great, profound gladness of heart, uh, what, a, what an expression when it says, when Luke says that um, he saw the grace of God, there in verse 20, I don't have my glasses on, okay, hold on, fix that, verse 23, um, he, he was glad when he saw the grace of God. I mean, you ever think about that? This struck me some weeks ago when I first was looking at this, to see it's possible in some way to see the grace of God. That's what Barnabas saw, the fruit of it operating there amidst these people there in the city of Antioch. Well, he sees the grace of God. He's rejoicing with such profound gladness of heart. And then because of that, because of what he sees, he gives them this exhortation, this encouragement, these orders. In essence, Barnabas is saying, 
This is a really good thing that's going on here in your midst. It is a, it is a beautiful thing that's going on in your midst. And we also have a, a horrible great enemy. Don't take this for granted. Don't drop your guard. Lean into Jesus and stay in the fight. He's exhorting them. Folks, you don't need to be exhorted to do the easy thing. I don't need to be exhorted to have a bowl of ice cream. I don't need to be exhorted around 3 o'clock this afternoon to take a nap. Right? It's the hard but good things you have to be exhorted to do. See, the, the assessment that Barnabas is giving us here of the situation, the events there at Antioch, again, points to the Lord's expansive and inclusive purposes and plans for His people. Again, when and why do you have to exhort someone? Just think about your own personal experience or, or maybe you know, whether you're giving it or receiving it. It's, it's when perhaps you're tempted to give up. You're exhausted. The odds, the opposition against you are looming too large and too much. Or it's something too daunting or perhaps you're, you're struggling to keep going. Maybe it's literally a race. Some of you know what that's like. I don't, can't identify with why you would want to run. But anyway, um, you know, sometimes you have to be exhorted to keep going. To keep going. That's exactly what Barnabas is doing here, urging them, encouraging them, imploring them, exhorting them. You see, gospel work brings kingdom expansion. Stay with me here. Gospel work brings kingdom expansion. Kingdom expansion brings the retaking of enemy-occupied territory. The retaking of enemy-occupied territory brings opposition and resistance. Therein the need for exhortation. Therein the need for encouragement and to be reminded. And in terms of this, specifically, of living out this doxological diversity... We do, then and now, stand up against, need to understand that we stand up against, the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil who want nothing of any doxological diversity on this earth. That's to the glory of Jesus and the expansion of his kingdom. Why on earth would Satan want that? And his ways are so... So subtle here, so subtle, so deadly, so devastating, and therein we need to be exhorted. Every one of us needs to be exhorted here. The Lord has made plain, clear, plain, His plans for His people. We need to be longing and laboring for this. Takes us now to the third point, the third and final point. So not only do we see the uh, the um, initiative, sorry, I blanked there, the initiative there at Antioch, and then that followed up with that, Barnabas' assessment of these events. But then, as a consequence, and flowing out of all that, the identity 
of these disciples, the way they are described, and it really is worth thinking about. Uh, Let me take you to verses 25 to 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I don't know if you knew where that... Well, that's kind of something you, like, we just don't think about. Where did that come from? Well, Luke tells us what the history is of that designation of one group of people calling another group of people Christians, Christ, Christians. It's quite, quite worthwhile to just plumb that, drill down on that for just a minute and to think about what's happening here in, in Antioch and how this comes about. So where does this come from? Luke, up to this point in, in the book of Acts, has described the disciples of Jesus in these ways, as, as disciples, as saints, as brothers, as believers, as those who are being saved, and people of the way. A lot of, and we, that's like a sermon series right there, just the significance of, you know, every one of those designations. And now, though, we have this new thing, this new thing. And this is not, by the way, this is not originating from the believers themselves, this designation. This is coming from the people outside. This is coming from the, the uh, unbelieving, watching world, referring to these followers of this Jesus as Christians, these onlookers. Now, some scholars have said they think that this was actually meant to be a derogatory term, poking fun at them. Others, and I'll just tell you, I think this is more likely, say it is probably more of a descriptive term. This is who they were about and what they were about. But, but whatever, whichever way you want to go with that, whether it's descriptive or derogatory, it ultimately doesn't really matter not in the end, not for this point here this morning, because there's some significance to the fact that they were called something. That for some reason, these folks on the outside of the church felt the need to come up with a name to describe these other people in the church. What could that mean? What could that mean? It meant that they recognized, the people in Antioch recognized that these followers of Jesus were not Jew and they were not Gentile. They were not followers of Herod, nor were they followers of Caesar. They were something else entirely. Something else entirely. And that's why a new term had to be created to describe what they were. Christian. They were something new entirely, something the world had never, had never seen. Their identity transcended every other worldly, earthly category. There was nothing else, there was no way else to label them because Jesus was what they were about at the most fundamental, significant level. And so again, you see how the the identity of these believers is pointing us towards the Lord's expansive and inclusive purposes, something just beautifully transformative here. You know, the the great tales, the the great myths, however far back you want to go, often have integrated within the storylines a discovery of identity. 
of, of the, hero, the hero. The hero, part of the hero's journey is to discover who they are and where they came from. Now, I'm about to make a leap. Bear with me. I'm not saying for a minute that the last Star Wars trilogy is going to end up in the pantheon of the great myths of Western culture. There's too many flaws in these last three movies. We can talk about Take me out to lunch, I'll tell you about it. Um, that said, you do see something of this idea of, a, of identity and a quest for that in those three films with the, the main character, who's actually Ray. those of you who have seen those films. Who is she? Where did she come from? Is she just this abandoned orphan left on this planet, or is she something more? Is she something else? And in the third film, spoiler alert, in the third film where she comes to learn, yeah, I know, horror, um, where she comes to learn that she's actually the granddaughter of the evil emperor that nearly does her in, nearly devastates her, until she comes to realize that, oh my goodness, Leia knew all along and embraced me and took me in and trained me nonetheless. So that by the time you get to the last scene of the film, she's asked, who are you? And her answer is, Ray Skywalker. And it's complete, the credits rolling, because now she knows. Now she knows. Now, for those of you who haven't seen the film and don't care, I apologize. <laughs> kind of. But again, the point being the issue of identity. For the Christian, for anyone here, anyone watching, anyone here who claims the name of Jesus, who says they are a follower of his, who says they are a disciple, you need not wrestle with the answer to the question of who you are anymore. That has been answered for you. You are his. You are his. And that must then be, in every arena of your life, the most important thing overall. Nothing else comes as a close second. It's a, it's a complete foundation-shifting, paradigm-shifting reality. To become a follower of Jesus and know that your identity is in him. And when a group of people assemble together, and that's their fundamental identity, that's where unity comes from. When you know that your, your, your shared identity is identity in Jesus, that's where unity comes from. And that's the only hope, ultimately, that we have for racial harmony. Shared identity in Christ. That's this world's hope, not just for unity, but for racial harmony, which is why we have to press on this, to press on this. To the degree that you find your significance, your identity, who you are, your priorities, and how you think of yourself, to the degree that you allow those questions to be answered by age or shape or color or class 
or skills or occupation or politics or genealogy or heritage or history. To the degree that we allow any of those things to even come to a close rival of our fundamental identity in Jesus, we are committing idolatry and betraying our Lord. We have to say that. We have to say that and we have to hear that. And by God's grace, we've got to learn how to live out of that. That is our only hope. That is his, his plan. That is his purpose for his people, that which we need to be longing and laboring for. I want to recommend a book to you. I heartily commend this book to you uh, by a gentleman by the name of Aaron Layton. The title is Dear White Christian. And here's the subtitle. It's almost reminds, harkens back to some of these old Puritan titles. Those of you who have ever read any of the old Puritan books, and you can see, like, that it's, I think it's why they had title pages back in those days, because the subtitles oftentimes went that long. Um, so, Dear White Christian, what every white Christian needs to know about how black Christians see, think, and experience racism in America. It's a great book. We'll tag it on something later. You can look it up. In, in his book, what, what uh, Aaron Layton talks about, it's a fantastic point, is, is when sometimes many believers, well-meaning, well-intentioned, will say and think something along these lines when it comes to, to these matters. They, they will say and think something like, well, you know, God has already made us one. God has already made us one. He's already declared us to be one. So we don't really need to work at this. That really shouldn't take any effort or, or, or such because he's already said we're one. Is that really true? Here's the analogy he uses in the book, and I think, it's very, I think he's dead on right. He draws an analogy to marriage in Paul's words in Ephesians 5, where the Lord says the husband and the wife have been made one flesh. I mean, this is an ontological shift, this marvelous thing that's happened. The two, one plus one, is divine math, become one. Okay, but there's any of you here, anyone here in this room who's been married or is married or ever been married knows there's a practical side to working out that declarative oneness, right? If you don't know that, you're on a fast track to marital counseling. Um, now, here's a quote from his book I want to read to you. Anyone who's been married for more than a week realizes that if there's going to be any unity between a husband and a wife, it will take intentional hard work, communication, understanding, apologies, and forgiveness. Generally, married couples realize they are supposed to operate as a unified couple. They know marriage takes work. And even though the Bible presents a husband and a wife as one, the husband and wife must work to truly live as one. The truth about true unity within the ethnically diverse body of Christ is that we have to do some hard, intentional work. God has made us one. That's true. But we need to live and labor out of that oneness. We need to live and labor out of that oneness, which of course then means, as Leighton says, hard, intentional work, sacrifice, out of love, 
a glad willingness to lay down our preferences, our desires, even our rights. It has to mean that. It has to mean that. Now, you ask immediately, I know, I know, your heart, my heart, I immediately, the first place you go is, whoa, 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 what would that mean? Because then we get kind of protective of all that stuff. I don't know. I don't know exactly. I have a feeling that the best way to answer that is it depends on where you are in your circumstances. I, I do know this. The only way to get at the answer to that question is to go to the Lord in prayer and as a community with humble, open hands. Bring prepared for however he answers that question. He's made clear, abundantly clear to us his plans, purposes. Again, future horizon, past horizon, here we are in the middle. He's made abundantly clear to us his plans for us as a people. We need to Long and labor for that. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for revealing those horizons. Oh, thank you for the hope that we have in the future that's coming, that is coming. And we thank you for this historical record of our past, of what you were doing and what you were showing us. And both are equally true and equally certain, the future hope and the past record. You have something in mind that is expansive and inclusive. All the barriers being knocked down. We ask that you would encourage us with these things. We ask that you would embolden us with these things. Embolden our prayers. Bolden our efforts. Oh, Lord Jesus, may the, the gospel show itself to be what it is, winsome, and may people see. May people see, even, even in us, individually, in us as a body as well. Help us to grapple with these things and to gladly obey you as our Lord, as our Savior, as our King. And whatever that would mean, and whatever that would mean, because we are yours. I'm praying these things in your name. Amen.